Lord, we thank you once again for this time of the week where we gather together as your people, listening to you and your word as you challenge us, as you encourage us, as you speak to us. And so pray that you would give us ears to hear. In your son's name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I knew I'd arrived at the pinnacle of fatherdom, um, where our youngest, on the way to school one morning, said, Daddy, when we get home, please can we watch The Princess Bride, which is the best film in all the world. Um, If you've not had a chance to watch it, that is your homework for this week. Um, If you want to watch that instead of home groups, that's up to your home group leaders. Um, There's a key scene in it. Um where the reputation of, this is going somewhere, don't worry, (laughs) where the reputation of one of the key characters um, astoundingly has gone before him and kind of changes the film. It's a complicated story, but there's a guy called Wesley. He was only mostly dead, and he's now taken a pill from Miracle Max covered in chocolate spread, which means that he is partly alive again. But the problem is he has to storm the castle, rescue Princess Buttercup from evil Prince Humperdinck before she marries him. And all Wesley has is a giant named Fezig, um, Andre the Giant, if you remember him from days gone by, sadly dead, Um, an alcoholic swordsman named Inigo Montoya, a wheelbarrow and a fireproof cloak taken from Miracle Max. Here is a picture of Fezig the Giant. And what they do is they dress him in the fireproof cloak from Miracle Max and they say that he is the Dread Pirate Roberts. Of course, he's not really the Dread Pirate Roberts because Wesley is the Dread Pirate Roberts. But the point is the reputation of the Dread Pirate Roberts has gone before. This guy is famous, this guy is infamous, so that when they come to the castle and they see him coming and they hear his words and they marry the two together, what they know of the Dread Pirate Roberts, at least the stories about the Dread Pirate Roberts, they are terrified and so the battle is won already. They basically scarper, they melt in fear before him. And that's a bit like Joshua. (laughs) Let me explain to you why. One writer puts it like this. So far in the book, the primary means of advance is the word of truth about who God is and what he has done. I'll say that again. So far in the book, the primary means of advance is the word of truth about who God is and what he has done. Do you remember in Rahab in chapter 2, she said, I know the Lord has given the land to you and a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all in the country are melting in fear before you. That's an extraordinary thing for Rahab to say. We get it in chapter 5 and verse 1 as well. Their reputation grows and so verse 5, verse 1, all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan All the Canaanite kings along the coast heard about the Lord, how he dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over. So they had no courage to face the Israelites. Their hearts melted in fear. So it's not so much a book about military battles, actually, as some claim. It's more a book about a story about a people spreading through a land, and the people then follow along behind the story about them. Their reputation grows. In one sense, the land is already defeated because the word of God about them is getting out. You get it a few times in the passage for today as well. So 9 verse 1, now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things. Well then further down that page, verse 3, 
When the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they resorted to a ruse. Or next page, 10 verse 1. Now Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it. And he had heard that the people of Gibeon made a treaty with Israel. The primary means of advance is the word of truth about who God is and what he has done. And so they found it, in relative terms, easy so far. But what we find now as you reach chapter 9 and 10 is that a number of obstacles become apparent. Let's have a look at some of them. We'll see there are challenges from outside the people and we'll see there are challenges from inside the people as well. But here's the thing. Here's why I think this chapter is worth listening to, or at least one good reason why. It's a beautiful story of the way God uses... Sin, mistakes, obstacles, disappointments, messes, and his plans are not thwarted. But in an extraordinary way, he takes them and he sovereignly draws them into his purposes and brings good from them. He, he breathtakingly redeems them. Which means for us, whatever's happened, whatever we've been through, whatever the situation, whatever the story, wherever we've ended up, wherever we think we ought to be, and we think, why am I here doing this? This is not what I planned. There is always room for humble, hopeful optimism. There is no situation ever that the Lord is not able to redeem and to use in his plans and purposes. Hopefully we'll see that coming through. Let's have a look down at the text. As we've said, the news about the people of God is spreading, and the surrounding nations, well... Actually, it's striking in chapter 9 because the surrounding nations have just perhaps begun to realise and twig that despite the stories about Israel and despite what people are saying, actually maybe Israel aren't quite as invincible as they once were. And so you see, firstly, these challenges from outside the people. Maybe they've heard about chapter 7 with Achan. Do you remember the mess the spies head in kind of complacently? They assume it will be easy. They're chased away. We know it's because the Lord wasn't pleased with them because Achan had stolen the forbidden articles. And so then, when we reach 9 verse 1 and you've got the kings west of the Jordan hearing about these things, the kings in the hill country, the western foothills along the, the entire coast of the Mediterranean as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, they, they come together to wage war against Israel. Maybe they realise it's not quite so cut and dry that Israel will win because, well, look what happened initially at Ai. And so far, it's been single cities who have been up against Israel. Now they're beginning to think outside the box. And so you get these, it's very timely, you get coalitions forming. And the idea seems to take off. You get, this is the first of a number of coalitions. So in 9, 1 to 6, the people we'll be dealing with mostly today. But then you get it as well in 10, verse 3 and 4. Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to various people. And a little later as well in chapter 11, northern hill country tribes begin to form. They join together against the people. Three separate coalitions of kings joining against the people of God. And it's striking in, in military terms or strategic geographical terms in chapter 9, actually this is pretty vital, this first coalition. Because what Israel are trying to do is go for the centre of the land. 
They want to take the central territory and divide the north and the south, leaving the north and the south stranded. Yes, they'll have opponents on either side, but it means they've got into the heart of the land. There'll be a massive wedge. Israel in the middle, Canaanites either side. So that seems to be perhaps why this coalition forms, to gather their forces together, to join together against a common enemy. So there's a coalition that forms. That's the first um, obstacle from the outside. The second one seems to be not just coalitions, but there's cunning as well. Now, we know that Gibeon was a key city. You get that at the start of chapter 10, a royal city. You can see, in fact, from archaeology, it was a, a wealthy place. There was a flourishing economy. There have been things found, numerous wine cellars full of large stone jars of, of wine. Uh, but have a listen into their plan in verse 3, so this cunning of the Gibeonites. Now, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. They, they went as a, as a delegation whose donkey were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy, and then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, in a funny accent, we've come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Gibeon, central hub city in the Hivite territory. They think, let's avoid destruction. Instead, let's go for a disguise. Let's try and pretend we're not from round here. Pretend we're not neighbours. See if we can negotiate, trick them, shake hands on it before they even realise. Ha, and then what do they do? Just drawing back slightly, a bit of relevant background information, though slightly technical. It seems that the Hivites possibly have a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures. Just imagine the, maybe the theology department in the Canaanite University, Gibeon campus, comparative religion professors pulling their knowledge, trying to come up with, well, how, do we, how can we stop them? How can we save everyone's skin? And maybe they come across Deuteronomy 20. Because there in Deuteronomy 20 in verse 10, it says you can offer them a chance to surrender peacefully, which will mean they're your servants, but only if they come from far away. If they're neighbours, that doesn't work. They have to be from a distance. Verse 15, this is how you are to treat all the cities, Deuteronomy 20. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are a distance from you and don't belong to the nations nearby. It doesn't work in Canaan. If, if it comes out that they're Hivites, that won't work. So they put on their disguises, they put on their funny accents, they pretend they're from somewhere else. And they seem to pull the wool over Israelites' eyes. They are fooled by the disguise. They pretend they're exhausted. They've travelled for days. Joshua, look at our sacks and our wineskins. Look at our sandals and our clothes are so old. Look at our mouldy bread. Come on, can we come and join your team? The narrator slips it in. I love in verse 7. The Israelites said to the Hivites, the neighbours, he kind of lets it slip that they are not actually foreigners from a distance. But the Israelites are sucked in by the disguise and, and by the flattery too in verse 9 maybe. Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we've heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan. It's, it's very clever. If you can't batter down the front door, well look for a window around the back. See if you can squeeze in there. So you get these coalitions and this cunning coming from outside. But then there are challenges inside as well. Sadly, as is often the case in the Bible, actually, 
the real problems, the real danger and the damage to the people of God doesn't come from outside the people of God. Actually, very often it comes from within. Inside the church. Fights and factions and moaning and grumbling and sin and self-sufficiency. So have a look down at verse 14. Maybe you spotted it as Amy read it to us. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Big mistake. In one sense, it wasn't so much to be deceived, but it was to, to not pray. And from there, the web just gets more and more and more tangled. They head deeper and deeper into the mess. For a, you see, for a people who serve a God of truth and commitment and covenant even, it means, verse 15, and Joshua makes a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. It's serious. It can't just be reversed upon. We can't just tear up the paper, even if it was signed on false understanding. It's been ratified. And so three days later, the truth comes out, verse 19. The leaders say, well, no, we've, we've given them our oath by the Lord. We can't touch them. And so what we'll do, verse 20, we will let them live so that God's wrath won't fall on us. Our God of truth, his wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was, was kept. The Israelites, they want to kill them. The leaders say, no, we can't do that. We shook hands. Isn't verse 14 important? They didn't pray. Isn't that challenging? Isn't that so contemporary for us? They were so busy, so confident perhaps in their own abilities, their own judgment, the fact that God was with them. They, they just forgot to ask him about it. I think it's meant to pull us up short. How easily we kind of end up making the decisions ourselves and not praying and not inquiring of the Lord, but then bringing it to him as a sort of rubber stamp. Lord, Lord I've decided this is going to happen. This is what we'll do. Uh, can you make that happen, please? Is that all right? Hope that's okay. Thanks very much. Bye. Um, we become sort of so self-assured, so arrogant. We become the boss. He becomes the servant. We know what we want, and we ask him to get it for us, please. Thank you. Now, again, there is a whole issue of guidance, um, which can be thorny. I'm not the kind of person who thinks we need guidance from the Lord on what to have for tea tonight or what supermarket to shop in. But I take it in key life decisions where you're looking to make a treaty with a nation who just turned up on your doorstep out of the blue and it's all slightly dodgy. Not praying is a bit short-sighted. No? And yet how easily we don't inquire of the Lord. We set our hearts on something and we assume it's okay and then we seek God to agree with us that it's okay to deliver the goods. We, the danger of walking by faith, walking by sight and not by faith. The danger of making decisions by mouldy bread rather than by what the Lord thinks. Maybe sometimes we don't inquire because we don't really want an answer. We don't want him 
to answer. If we don't ask, he can't say, and so we just kind of crash on by ourselves. Maybe sometimes it's the case of James in the Bible. Do you remember in James chapter 4? We were just too proud, and we think we're God. James chapter 4, 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. We think we've got it sorted. We think we're God. But we're not, and he is. They didn't pray. And so Israel ends up getting tied up with these Gibeonite neighbours. And the reality of that agreement, the handshake, will get tested in chapter 10. But I think what we see in chapter 10 is that obstacles become opportunities. Sounds a slight cliche, but I think it's true. You see, despite the reality of the decision to shake hands with Gibeon being a bad thing, and it was a bad thing, the Lord redeems it and uses it and brings real good from it. Pick it up at um, 10 verse 4. You'll see what's going on. So the surrounding nations basically turn on Gibeon. You traitors, what have you done? So the king says, come up and help me attack Gibeon, because it's made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, don't abandon your servants, come up to us quickly and save us, help us. Because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us, brackets, and it's your fault. Come on, Joshua, you're on our side now. They see us as traitors, help. We shook hands and everything. And Joshua does, or perhaps better still, the Lord does. So just cut to the end of the story, 10 verse 12 to 14. It's an extraordinary claim you see there. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, a new moon over the valley of Ijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it's written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Here's Joshua praying now. He might have forgotten back in chapter 9, but chapter 10, he's on his knees. What are we to make of this, this sun standing still thing? Obviously, it's a contentious bit of scripture. I can tell you for sure there have been many PhDs written trying to understand what's going on. I'm I'm not going to say a huge amount. There are multiple theories, but I want to say two things as we approach kind of stories like this in the Bible. The first thing to say is it depends how we approach the text. That is, and to put it quite bluntly, if we think God is not real, and if we think he didn't make the world, and if we think he's not really active or powerful or real or true, then those are the lenses that we come to the text with, and we need to be honest about that. And of course, bits like this will make no sense and be laughable. Of course they will. Because the glasses that we're wearing say, well, there is no such thing as God, and we're just here by accident, actually. If that's you, if that's your friends, um, I'd love to ask you or for you to ask them, what evidence would it take to convince you that God is real? What evidence would it take? And if the answer is basically nothing, then say to them, 
or let me say to you, please don't kid yourself that you're neutral or rational or scientific even. In Jesus' day, people came and saw the miracles. They saw the evidence. They saw it. And what did they do? They wanted to kill him because they saw the evidence. I'm often struck by vast numbers of scientists, high-level, top-level scientists, who, who are believers because they see the nature of the world and they see the evidence for God in the way things are made. So maybe the question is not so much, can you trust the evidence as we come to stuff like this or as we try and assess whether there is even a God? Maybe it's not so much, can you trust the evidence? Maybe the question more is, can, can I trust myself? Can, can I trust my heart? Is actually there, any, is there anything that would convince me that God is real? And, and if I kind of veer towards saying a no, then am I actually rational in that? As we approach texts like this? Or... So there's a question, firstly, about the kind of underlying worldview that we have as we approach the Bible. The glasses that we almost unknowingly wear and we see reality through. As we see the world, as we see the text. The second thing to say, so that there's a question there about our sort of worldview. The second is to say, this is unusual. This is unusual. And whether the sun literally stopped in the sky and for a time the Lord simply pressed pause and dealt with the fallout of the kind of gravity anomalies that will be going on, whether there was an eclipse, which some would say there was, you can track it back and you can see I'm not sure. I have no doubt that God can and does at times suspend the laws of nature for his purposes. He, he raises dead people. Of course he can, of course he does. I think even within the text itself, there's a, there's a hint there that we're going to find this hard to believe or trust. Because in verse 13, as it's written in the book of Jashar, seems to be the writer saying, yeah, I know this is tricky, but actually, even outside the Bible, people are talking about it. And I find it interesting, it's not necessarily persuasive, but uh, there are apparently a number of non-Christian historical sources that seem to report a particular long day that's very similar to this. You can go and look online. The em Emperor Yeo in China, the Greek historian Herodotus reporting on Egyptian history. There are ancient historical texts from Aztec, Peru, Babylonia, Mexico. There are scientists who seem to say, we don't quite know why, but there seems to be something up with our timing. We seem to be missing some time somewhere. Something unusual seems to have happened. Now, you can take that as you will. The point, though, whether it literally happened or, or it's just a comprehensible description for the people of God trying to understand how this happened or how the people defeated the coalitions, how the Lord enabled his people to defeat this coalition of kings, the point is that the Lord is protecting and blessing his people again. Which is why I said it was his battle. He sent hailstones. He protects his people. And strikingly, those people include the Gibeonites. This battle shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't even have been a thing. Because they should have inquired, 9 verse 14. The oath shouldn't have been taken. The handshake shouldn't have been made. But it was. And they stick to their word. And they are faithful to the oath. And the thing I love is that in years to come, as the Bible moves on, settled in the land, there's King Saul, and he treated the Gibeonites badly. And so King David comes and stands up for them and backs them. And increasingly, the Gibeonites are sort of assimilated into the people of God. 
Not just his servants, though. When they get back into the land after the exile in Nehemiah 3 and Nehemiah 7, you will read of the families of the Gibeonites. Their names are part of the people of God. But 9 verse 14, they shouldn't even have been there. They should have inquired of the Lord. They should have prayed, but they didn't. And then these people come in, and then suddenly, before you know it, they're part of the people. And the story is redeemed. Enemies deceive their way in. But finally, God's grace even extends to people like that. And do you know that's not uncommon as you read the Bible? God's sovereign plans and purposes at work in such a way that when we muck up and we have and we do and we will, we're both still culpable for our muck-ups and our sin. It's still wrong in one sense, but God is able to weave them into his plans and purposes and bring good from them. And it's not just that God is kind of not phased by it. Oh, okay, plan B, part two, part three. But it's actually, he's, he's able, he's known it's going to happen. He's able to weave it in sovereignly, taking our failures and mistakes and blunders so that people like the deceitful Gibeonites dressed up in their old sandals with their mouldy bread, their funny accents, are included. I don't know what that means for you. I do know that it means wherever you are, whatever's going on, whatever you've done, whatever's been done to you, the decisions you make, that you made, that you look back and regret, the skeletons that you have in your closet, the times when you look back and think, if only I hadn't gone that way, but I'd gone that way. Well, we can be humbly confident that God will use those things and redeem them and bring good from them. And we might have a tendency of panicking, thinking, how did I get here? I don't know what's going on. It feels like game over. He's not interested in someone like me. He's not able to work through someone like me, we think. But the story of Gibeon is they are drawn into God's people and given an identity and a blessing is that he can and he does work even through our mistakes and our sins. And friends, if you don't believe me come and chat to me afterwards but I want to say this is not just wishful thinking this is not just my kind of naive optimism not just what I'd like to believe but I take it it's a thread we see again and again and again in the words of scripture it's one of the most beautiful things as the Lord is able to work through messy people like us and draw them into his plans and purposes for an incredible almighty glorious worship at the end of time it's real it's our story let me pray father we confess that we find that truth at times very hard to to actually believe some of us have been through horrific things some of us have made perhaps very bad decisions done things or said things that we wish we hadn't 
that we are embarrassed by, that we regret, perhaps we regret every single day. And yet we thank you for the story of the Gibeonites as you, as you draw these people who shouldn't have been in your people into your purposes for blessing. Well, we don't quite get how you do that. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that at the place where we see the most sin in all the world, in all of history, ever, there we see the most good and the most blessing. Help us, please, to be a people who are honest about where we've mucked up. To be honest as we look to you. But to be hopeful too as we look ahead and see you're the kind of God who can redeem anything. In your son's name we pray. For his glory. For our good. Amen.